Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. On this episode, I'm going to be sticking with the theme of creation in Genesis 1, but I'm going to shift my attention to an article I wrote engaging with some of the most common responses by young earth creationists to other views and why I don't really find them all that compelling. Someone asked me once why my episodes are often basically audio versions of what I post as articles on the blog, which is true about 50% of the time. Well, it's because every time I don't do that, I have some people saying, I don't have time to read, but I'd love to listen to an audio version on my commute. Or the other way around, I'd love to have a text version so I can refer back to it later. So this episode, like many before, is an audio version with some slight modifications to an article I recently released. Now, if you like the audio or the text versions of this uh, episode article and find the content of the Freed Thinker podcast and blog to be helpful to you, please consider sponsoring us financially via Patreon or by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the webpage. Your gift of any amount would be greatly greatly appreciated, as would any iTunes reviews and comments. I greatly appreciate those. Uh, The greater, the stronger the star rating, the higher up in search results we will uh, arrive. So if you also are in the Greensboro, North Carolina area or will be in May or would like to be in May or are open to being in that area in May. Uh, Tickets are still on sale for the Mentionables Tour in May of 2018. And you can buy them at thementionables.org. Now, if you'd like to come out and meet me or some of the other guys over at the Mentionables, or see my debate with Ben Watkins on the God of the Bible and Suffering, head on over to thementionables.org and grab your tickets today. Now, with that shameless plug out of the way, Let's get on with the show. Due to the fact that I'm presenting my views on Genesis 1 for some time now in both written articles and in the current podcast series, I've received a lot of questions about how I would either defend a specific non-literal young earth creationist reading of Genesis 1 in detail and how I would handle arguments given for a young earth creationist reading of Genesis 1. Now, I plan on doing a series dealing in more detail with the specifics of Genesis 1 from my specific view, since my current work has been more on the hermeneutical and macro level. But I'd like to give some examples for why I find the common arguments put out by young earth creationists to be less than convincing, and to be honest, just downright insulting sometimes. I'm going to try to give a smattering of the most common arguments in order from most absurd to most technical that I hear and respond as briefly as possible to them. Now, uh, I should also say that one of the things, one of the indicators that led me away from young earth creationism and towards a view of Genesis 1 like I hold now was precisely the failure of young earth creationist exegesis, in my opinion. So that is 
because I thought that young earth creationism on its own was not a good exegetical option for Genesis 1, it led me to understand it in other ways. That means that the failure of young earth creationism, or the failure in my view, actually is one of the reasons to understand Genesis 1 differently. So when people say the plain meaning of Genesis 1 just is uh, a young earth creationist view, well, if that is a problematic view, then it's going to lead you to look for other ones. But we'll get to that. Now, before I dive into these responses, I'd also like to remind my audience that I'm not young earth creationists. I'm not old earth creationists, and I'm not theistic evolutionists. I hold to a literary framework view that sees Genesis 1 as a synchronic and polemical attack to Israel's recent Egyptian context. Often the dialogue is framed as if there are only two options, young earth creationists and old earth creationists. This is simply not the case. However, since my view is hardly ever addressed, and not even my view specifically, but uh, a literary framework view more broadly, I'm going to use arguments presented by young earth creationists in general, though typically they're against old earth creationists. I should also say that I would like to do an episode for why I'm not an old earth creationist either with regard to Genesis 1. But the problem here is that I'm having a hard time finding any good sources that attempt to give a purely exegetical reason to hold to a young earth creationist view of Genesis 1. Typically, the view is built on some kind of assumption of concordism, and then it rapidly moves into trying to defend that view from science. To that end, the young earth creationist criticism of old earth creationism as simply trying to shoehorn in an old universe into Genesis 1 may be somewhat accurate. So if you hold to an old earth view and can either present arguments strictly from the text of Genesis itself, or you have some sources that you know that attempt to do that, then please let me know. No, I'm not looking for sources like Hugh Ross that give me all the astrological uh, and, and everything, or I guess astronomical, not astrological, astronomical reasons to hold to, to an old earth view of Genesis 1. Okay, so with that, let's look at some of the most common attempts at exegetical responses in defense of young earth creationism. Number one, old earth creationists are intimidated by secular scientists and so they reject what they know the text says. Okay, this is condescending at best. Not only do most people who do not take a young earth creationist view driven by text are they driven by contextual concerns and a desire to follow what they see in the scriptures this is also wildly problematic in its view of what science is notice the false attribution of secular science which effectively means whatever science disagrees with their view it's a kind of question begging that sees anything that disagrees with their view of genesis as quote-unquote secular and as such disqualifies anything that disagrees with them from consideration this is the other side of the coin from atheists who say that whatever is quote-unquote creation science must be wrong because it is quote-unquote Christian. Well, really, we should be asking what the evidence is showing and not disqualifying something just because it disagrees with us. Not to mention that many scientists are Christian or religious who disagree with young earth creationists and who do good science. Notice these scientists are only quote-unquote secular, well, which ones, who are they, how do they know that they're driven by secular concerns, and so on, but, you know, 
ignoring that. Uh, but notice that they're only considered secular in this area, but not with regard to other areas of science where they use the same methods and, and, and such, but which don't rub up against young earth creationist literalism. I'm also surprised that no one sees the stark irony that this was some kind uh, that this was some of the same kind of rhetoric used against heliocentrism several centuries ago. We have by and large altered how we understand some of the cosmology found in the Bible as being less than literal precisely because it could not accord with the findings of quote-unquote secular science. It's just too far in our rearview mirror for people to remember that. We could see this in the historical move from the flatter three-tier cosmology common to all ancient Near Eastern cultures, Israel included, and a spherical globe Earth. Or do many of you actually think that the Earth does indeed rest on literal pillars and is covered by a firm glass-like dome called the firmament? Everyone in the ancient Near Eastern context of the Old Testament would have read that in the same way that the young earth creationists do uh, with comments about the sky being blue and the earth orbiting the sun. All right, number two. If you just take the plain meaning of the text, it clearly means six literal solar days. Okay. While this does touch on what I'll address in later articles in a more robust manner, let me simply state that this is just patently false. In fact, it was precisely the plain meaning of the text which drove myself and many others away from a literalist understanding of Genesis 1. There's a plethora of questions and problems that arise from such a literal reading. For example, how is there morning and evening with no sun? Uh, is there is this supernatural light quote-unquote good? And if so, why did God scrap it and replace it just a few days later with the sun? How are there days when God says that the whole purpose of the sun and moon and stars was for the purpose of marking out days and seasons in day four? The light and the darkness are separated on day one, but then God creates the sun and the moon for the purpose of separating the lightness and darkness on day four. But if that had already happened on day one, then what light and darkness are being separated by day four? Did they fuse back together sometime on day two or day three? How is it literal days if plants are created on day three, but we're told in Genesis 2 that no plants had grown because it had not yet rained and man was not yet created to work the earth? Could they not survive three days without water or until man was created? And on and on. There are numerous problems with reading Genesis 1 as a literal diachronic account of creation, not to mention the numerous reasons to read it along literary framework lines that I mentioned in the prior series. Thus, for many of us, a straightforward reading will not yield six literal solar days. It simply is not the clear and plain reading of the text like they imagine it to be. Number three, Genesis is literal history and not allegory. I will quickly state that this is just a false dichotomy. In fact, most Bible students should readily identify this fact. Several examples can be used to show this from the scriptures, though this is far from exhaustive. 
Chapters like Exodus 15 and Judges 5 are songs and, or poems that recount historical events, but they do so in a poetic and non-literal genre. Does this mean that the events they recount did not happen historically? Does it mean that they are allegorical? Do we read them as literal or allegorical? Well, neither. They're poetic retellings of historical events and thus are literal history, but told in highly stylized language and with a bit of flair. Another example are the Gospels. The Gospels are not told in historical chronological order. I'm sorry if you aren't aware of this and I'm like bringing the house down and, and the roof is crashing in of you, but they're just, they're just not arranged in chronological order. And I don't mean the, you know, the gospel orders. I mean the gospel themselves, the narrative within each gospel itself is typically not chronological. They're often arranged by theme or message and thus present a synchronic account of the life and teaching of Jesus. In fact, several of his sermons are likely amalgamations or combinations of several sermons. This is common fare for undergraduate Bible students at even the most conservative Bible colleges. Does this mean that because they are literary and theological, synchronic retellings of the life and teachings of our Lord in a, in a synchronic manner, that they are therefore allegory or non-literal? Does it mean we're saying that they're false or unhistorical or that in saying this, I'm somehow rejecting the inspiration, inerrancy, or perspicuity of the scripture? Of course not. That'd just be silly. Really, what this argument does is simply perpetuate the false dichotomy as a hermeneutic, the kind of vague literalism that dispensationalists will often use in an attempt to accuse, accuse other theological positions of not taking the text seriously by either inconsist, being inconsistently literal or allegorical, when in fact it is far more often complex than that with many more options available to the exegete. Number four, Jesus took Genesis literally, and so should we. Well, there's two major problems with this argument. Firstly, it treats Genesis as a singular genre, historical narrative. This means that if they can show that some passage where Jesus assumes the historical reality of, say, Adam and Eve, or some of the patriarchs, or cities such as Sodom and Gomorrah, that they have thus proven that all of Genesis, and thus chapter 1, is literal history as well. This not only makes the confusion above of equivocating between historical and literal, see Moses' and Deborah's songs, which are historical but non-literal, but it also does not follow for, allow for genre variation within a book like Genesis. We see blended genres in other historical books like Exodus and Numbers, I would argue both penned by Moses, but we also see it in Genesis itself. Or do we think that Jacob's blessings on his sons are all historically literal narrative? Well, of course not. The second major problem is that the passage used to support this kind of argument often prove far too much. A common passage used for this is Mark 10.6. It's argued that Jesus believed that men and women were present at the beginning of creation due to his statement in Mark 10:6 that they were created male and female, quote unquote, from the beginning. 
There are several problems from this. First, whatever is meant by Jesus in Mark 10.6, it cannot be what the young earth creationist means for it. Even to remain consistent, they must maintain that Adam and Eve were not created from the literal beginning, the very first moment of creation, but rather at the end of the creation event on day six, the final stage of creation. At the very most, then, Jesus could be read to, me, to uh, mean that man and woman were present from the beginning of creation, referring to the whole of cre- the creation period before God Sabbath rest. At the point when he created humans, he created them male and female. At that point in creation, when he created humans. This means that however long it took to get from the beginning of creation to the beginning of humanity would not be accounted for in this verse. This means that the other option would be that Jesus is referring not to the beginning of all creation, to the very first moment, but to the beginning of the creation of humanity. However, this would hold regardless of the view someone holds of Genesis 1, since one could maintain that from the creation of humans at their point of creation during the creation event, that they were created male and female. This could be true if that point of creation was six days or 14 billion years into the creation event. When humans arrived on the scene, they were male and female. Furthermore, the parallel passage shows that the import of Jesus' point is in fact the creation of humanity and the development of divorce as a practice later in history. Of course, there could not be divorce prior to the creation of humans. So Jesus said that Moses allowed for it because of the sin of the people, but that it was not that way from the beginning. Well, if we're talking about divorce, then that would only even be po- become possible on day six anyways, which again would could be six days or 14 billion years later. In addition, the use of the phrase since the beginning also appears in John 8:44, referencing Satan being a murderer since the beginning. Well, was Satan a murderer before humans existed from the mom- very moment of creation? That would be a huge stretch to imagine that before the fall in the garden, before anything was created, the very moment of creation, possibly before Satan was created himself, Satan was a murderer. That would just be a stretch of that phrase. Finally, there are other questionable uses of the phrase that would be problematic if we held that it must mean from the very instant at the beginning of creation. So when the young earth creationist says that Jesus held to a literal reading of Genesis, they're making a wild overstatement. In fact, what is surprising is that if the timeline of creation was so pivotal, so vital to the conflict of worldviews between Christians and unbelievers, that it's the most important thing never directly stated or repeated anywhere in the scriptures. God doesn't inspire a single author in the scriptures to spell out young earth creationism. Number five, Moses bases the Sabbath as the seventh day on the seven literal day structure of Genesis 1. Well, when given the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus, uh, Moses writes this on the Sabbath. 
this is from Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The argument from young earth creationists is to say that Moses is here proving that Genesis 1 teaches six literal solar days because it's the framework that Moses appeals to in order to set the seven-day Sabbath cycle for Israel. This argument has several deep flaws with it, however. First, I would argue that Moses was the author of both Genesis and Exodus. And so he would know what he meant in Genesis 1 and would mean the same in Exodus 20. This much the young earth creationists and I agree. The problem is that if that is the case, then the verse no longer proves what they say it does. Since Exodus is reliant on Genesis 1 and its meaning, then whatever is meant in Genesis 1 would also be meant in Exodus 20. If Moses meant simply a sevenfold division paradigm, or the seven days as a framework for a synchronic creation account, then all he would be doing is repeating that same thing in Exodus 20. He's just appealing back to the first usage in Genesis 1. This means that Exodus 20 cannot be used as an argument for or against young earth creationism because it would mean whatever Moses meant already in Genesis 1, which is the very thing under dispute. To say that it means literal days is to simply beg the question of what Genesis 1 means in order to argue a verse that Genesis 1 means that. That's just poor hermeneutics and bad logic. We have further evidence that Moses did not mean literal solar days in Genesis 1 because if that were the case, then day 7 would be a literal solar day. This means God would have only rested from creation for 24 hours, which we know is not the biblical view. In John 5, Jesus is challenged on why he is working on the Sabbath, and he gives a rather interesting response. Now think about it for a second. In verse 17, we read, But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Think about what Jesus is saying for a moment. If God's Sabbath rest had ended after 24 hours, then of course God would be working after that. He was no longer resting. His Sabbath was over, and so that would not serve as a defense for Jesus' actions any more than me saying that I work on Sunday because Jesus worked on Tuesday. In order for Jesus' defense to make sense, he would have to be saying that God worked redemption during his Sabbath rest, quote, up until now, end quote, and that Jesus is just doing what his father has been doing all along. The Sabbath rest of day seven began after creation and has continued, quote, until now. It's not a literal 24-hour day. So if Moses was trying to find an exact literal analog for the Sabbath, then that would mean that the Jews would work for six days and then rest for the rest of their lives. That is clearly not what's being said here. 
Rather, he's appealing to the paradigm of six periods of work followed by a period of rest. This is further supported by the laws regarding the Sabbath years and the Sabbaths of Sabbaths years, the Jubilee year. They all follow the creation paradigm of six periods of labor followed by a period of rest, but do not follow it in an exacting manner. They follow the paradigm laid out in Genesis 1, which again means that whatever Moses meant in Genesis 1 is upheld in the paradigm in the Sabbath laws, and as such cannot be used to say that Genesis 1 must be six literal solar days. Considering that Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses, and it is there that we read, quote, for a thousand years is your, is, in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, Moses is apparently very clear that a day is a flexible concept, even to the point where thousands of years, a full day, yesterday, and a single watch of the night are all symbolically interchangeable. He does that exact same thing in Psalm 90. Number six, yom plus morning and evening in Hebrew always refers to a literal solar day. Now, this sounds exegetically strong, but it's simply a false assertion about the Hebrew construction. The problem is that morning and evening is never used in the same way in conjunction with Yom like it is in Genesis 1. The few times that the phrase morning and evening is used, it's only used about a dozen times in that order, it is used either of the daily events of a battle or of the daily sin offering, in which the 24-hour day is supported by other clear textual and narratival markers that determine the kind of interval that's being spoken of, because day and night also have strong symbolic meanings throughout the Old Testament. This means that the set of verses outside of Genesis 1 that uses the same grammatical structure is a null set. It doesn't exist. Therefore, such a use in Genesis 1 serves as a kind of hapax legomena, grammatically speaking, a hapax legomena, and as such, we cannot appeal to any external grammatical rules to demonstrate any particular reading of it. This means that we cannot say Genesis 1 must mean a literal 24-hour day because of some grammatical construction of yom plus morning and evening because there are no other parallel passages from which to derive this rule. Number seven, yom plus an ordinal or cardinal number in the Hebrew always refers to a literal solar day. This again sounds like a strong exegetical thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's saying what always is the case in the Hebrew. It's a grammatical rule. Well, again, it's simply false. It's just a false statement about Hebrew, and yet it's probably one of the most often repeated truisms of the Young Earth Creationist movement. Countless books, articles, blogs, debates, lectures simply assert it as a truism apparently without ever checking to see if it's true or not. 
Let me rebut this by simply giving several counterexamples. From the Old Testament alone, you could go to other uh, ancient Near Eastern Israelite and Jewish literature uh, and, and see this elsewhere as well. But this is just from the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, 7-9, in reference to the day of the Lord, says, And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. End quote. The unique day is a reference to the coming of the day of the Lord, which we know will not be a singular day. In fact, the context even says that there will not be day or night, but that it will be light all the time. The verse pairs Yom with a cardinal number. That's where it's getting unique day. It will be a singular day. And yet clearly it's not referring to a 24-hour solar day. Another example, Deuteronomy 10.10 reads, quote, I myself stayed on the mountain as, a, as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you, End quote. In this verse, when Moses says, as at the first time, he pairs Yom with an ordinal number. This is a reference to his first trip up the mountain to the Lord, which he says lasted 40 days and 40 nights. If we were to allow and follow the young earth creationist rule that Yom plus an ordinal number always means a 24-hour day, then Moses would be lying to us when he said that his first Yom, Yom plus an ordinal, lasted 40 days. In Isaiah 9.4, we read that God cut off Israel and struck them down in one day. That's Yom plus a cardinal number. It's not first, it's number one in one day. And yet this judgment on Israel we know took centuries. The, the, the divided kingdom and the fall to the other nations did not happen in a singular day. God did not cut off Israel and strike them down in one day. Day. We know that took a long period of time. So Yom plus a cardinal number in this case does not mean a literal 24-hour solar day. In Hosea 6.2 we read, quote, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. End quote. This is referring to the restoration of Israel. And not only is it highly poetic, formed around Hebraic parallelism, but it is clearly not limited to two or three days that God restored Israel to the land. Again, this is a non-literal usage of Yom, even though it's twice paired with a cardinal number in the same verse. So more examples can be adduced, but this goes to show that the quote-unquote rule, often repeated by young earth creationists, is simply not a real or valid rule in Hebrew. It's simply not the case that yom plus an ordinal or a cardinal number always means a 24-hour solar day. They've been repeating something that was created by grammatical fiat and as such should be rejected. We do not just get to make up rules to support our views while ignoring the many exceptions that invalidate the rule. Number eight, we see the use of the Vav consecutive construction in the Hebrew, which is how Hebrew marks out historical narrative, and thus we should take Genesis 1 as literal history. Now, like the rule listed above, this is simply not a rule. 
While the Vav consecutive, also called the Wow consecutive, construction is a well-known feature of Hebrew narrative, or rather Hebrew narration is to be more precise, it is simply not the case that it denotes historical narrative. The Vav consecutive construction is a construction of an imperfect verb, verb preceded by the Hebrew letter Vav. It means and. If one were to read the King James Bible, they'll quickly see the rather awkward plot device of beginning many sentences row with and, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. It happens throughout a lot of narratives. When this happens, the translators have chosen to make the Vav explicit in the translation. What this does is move the plot of a narrative along. Think of it like, and this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. The problem here is that the Vav consecutive is a rule to identify narrative. It is that it is that the young earth creationists are incorrect in saying that the rule is that it shows literal or historical narrative. They make the rule prove far too much. Again, without going into a ton of detail, let me merely present several counterexamples that invalidate the rule, or really the reformation of the Vav consecutive rule, as asserted by young earth creationists. Number one, the Vav consecutive appears seven times in Moses' song in Exodus 15. This is a historical poem, not a historical narrative. Number two, the Vav consecutive drives the parable given by Jotham in Judges 9, 8 through 15. For those of you not familiar with the parable or don't remember, this is the parable of all the different types of trees and they come and finally bow down to the bramble bush. It's, an, it's a parable. It's actually more like a fable than anything else. It is not historical narrative. Number three, Nathan's parable in rebuke of David in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 4 employs the Vav consecutive several times. That's a parable, not historic narrative. The Vav can, number four, the Vav consecutive can be replaced in Hebrew poetry and prose with the use of a justive case and genre does not appear to matter. Number five, the Vav consecutive can actually be missing the imperfect verb and yet refer to the movement of action in a future tense. So it doesn't have to be historical narrative. It can actually be predictions about the future. Number six, the Vav consecutive is even found at times in Hebrew poetry, such as Psalm 22:6, where it says, quote, "But I am a worm of and not a man, sorry, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people." End quote. In cases such as these, it uses its use does not indicate plot progression, but logical or temporal progression. So where it says, but I am a worm and not a man, that's a Vav consecutive. Or where it says a reproach of men and despised, that's a Vav consecutive. It's not necessarily moving a plot of a historical narrative along, but it's a moving along a temporal or a logical sequence. Number seven, we can see many other examples in Hebrew poetry, such as 47 uses of it in Psalm 18, 
For more on this, you can see an article called A Royal Song of Thanksgiving, 2 Samuel 22 equals Psalm 18, in Studies in Ancient Yahwistic Poetry, edited by Cross and Friedman. So, unless the young earth creationist wants to read clear poetry as literal historical narrative, or the same for allegory, such as Jotham's allegory, uh, uh, a fable of the bramble and the trees, or known parables such as Nathan's parable of the stolen sheep, then this clearly cannot be a hermeneutical rule that whenever we see a Vav consecutive construction, it automatically means that we must be reading literal historical narrative. Rather, what the Vav consecutive construction shows is the movement of a story along. It pushes the action by moving from one verb to the next in logical and or temporal progression. That's it. That is, it is a feature of narration, not necessarily literal narrative history. This can happen in Hebrew narrative, parable, allegory, or poetry, as we've seen. Conclusion. Now, while this may be convincing or compelling to some of you to re-examine your young earth creationism or give further consideration to alternative views, my purpose here is not to convert young earth creationists to other views. The purpose for me is always to help us understand each other better and to give clearer, deeper, more thoughtful arguments for our positions and against those that we disagree with. I'm here not to belittle my young earth creationist brothers, but calling them to a higher standard of reasoning, argumentation, and exegesis. As you can see, none of my comments are out of fear or reverence either way of quote-unquote secular science or anything of the kind. In fact, my concerns are not even related to any manner of concordism or attempt to sync the Bible with any type of science. I think that is largely a failed or at best irrelevant endeavor of a modernist church, whether young earth creationists or old earth creationists. I'm hoping you see that the concern is to faithfully read and interpret the scriptures and to hold true what I think the authorial intent of both the human and the divine author was in inspiring and composing the text of Genesis 1 as they did. And to that end, soli deo gloria. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please stop on by the webpage at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or join me over at the Freed Thinker podcast group page on Facebook. Well, join me next time as we continue looking at Genesis 1. Good night and God bless.